It seems that one of the blessings and curses of being a great orator is that whatever other accomplishments you have in life, you tend to become identified by one particular speech or turn of the phrase that is your greatest, your most famous, your most moving. Your, your identity almost becomes uh, entwined with that. So as we think of Abraham Lincoln and all that he accomplished, nonetheless, in our minds, usually some words from the Gettysburg Address come to mind, four score and seven years ago. If we think of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, we think about the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. For JFK, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. For Martin Luther King Jr., for all of the things that he accomplished, we tend to always have in mind first, I have a dream. Each of these men delivered powerful speeches throughout their careers. They did all kinds of amazing things, and yet those particular speeches and phrases are the things that have transcended their lifetime. And they continue to inspire and to challenge and to give hope and to shape our values and our actions today. Well, Jesus of Nazareth is easily the most important orator of all time because his words were truly the words of life. But as we'll see, he has many, many speeches, but one rises to the top of people's minds and memories, believers and non-believers alike. Now, clearly the people of his day recognized that there was something special about the way he spoke, because from the very earliest days of his ministry, we see that Jesus was surrounded by enormous crowds of people eager to hear what he had to say. And every single speech that has been recorded and preserved for us, we need to understand is of life and death importance to this world. But... Most people would agree one speech rises above the others in terms of the popular consciousness, both of Christians and non-Christians, and that is the one we know as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was delivered very early in Jesus' ministry, but Scripture records that already he was a transcendent figure, that he was drawing crowds to himself of incredible diversity, people from many nations and ethnicities, The Gospel of Matthew records in chapter 4, verse 25, that great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. We need to recognize what this is saying about him so early in his ministry, which is that he has crowds that include Jews from the big city, Jews from the Judean countryside, people from the hinterlands, Gentiles from the Decapolis, the ten cities, and from beyond the Jordan. And that these crowds, this diverse group of people who are thronging to hear what he has to say, are the audience for the Sermon on the Mount. Because that verse leads straight to chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Well, what exactly did he say? What is it that these crowds heard that day or those days, depending on how long this sermon exactly went on, what did they hear that was so very compelling to them? Well, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, quite a bit further in the gospel, we see that Matthew actually repeats almost word for word the exact same thing that he says in chapter 4, verse 23. What he says there is that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom 
and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Matthew repeats himself almost verbatim five chapters later, and what we need to understand is that this is an ancient literary technique to make sure we understand that within these two bracketing statements, everything inside it is related to that theme, that concept. So everything in Matthew chapters 5 through 9 are exactly what it said in chapter 4, verse 23, what I just described to you, which is Jesus teaching the proclamation of the kingdom of heaven and healing. Study Matthew 5 through 9. You're going to see it goes in that order. There's teaching and proclamation, then there's several chapters of healing. So in light of this, we need to understand that the Sermon on the Mount was really the definitive teaching and proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. I think this is why the Sermon on the Mount is so compelling. 20 centuries later, even in the non-believing imagination, there is a great deal of credit or respect given to the Sermon on the Mount, but it is also compelling for believers, and I think at the heart of it is this reality that here is the most concentrated teaching of the mystery and the beauty, the opportunity, the authenticity, the simplicity, and also the challenge of life in God's kingdom, which is what Jesus had come to inaugurate and make available to those who would follow him. And this sermon begins with nine short parallel statements. They are beautiful and profound, but I will confess I have always had a lot of difficulty processing them and actually applying them. They're known as the Beatitudes, right? They are some of those famous statements in all of Scripture. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. The very thing that makes them so memorable is the thing that makes them hard for me to process fully, to really do much with. Because if I read a chapter of Scripture in the morning, these verses go by in seconds. Right? It did not take me long to read them out loud, and I can read them silently way faster than I can read them out loud. They are so brief and they pass by so very quickly that they are difficult for my mind to grasp a hold of. They're slippery like some kind of wiggling fish for my mind to get a hold of. They have so few modifiers and clauses and conjunctions that it's difficult for me to parse out the meaning. There are no therefores or so that's or in orders or as Philip would say, big butts. There is virtually no context in any of them. And so as a Bible scholar, they include none of the tools that I typically rely on to understand and and think deeply about and apply Scripture. So I have always been challenged, and I am frequently tempted to just let them roll by as Jesus moves into longer stories and parables 
and teachings. It is easy to let them fly by unexamined. But we're going to resist that temptation this fall because we need to understand the Beatitudes. I am increasingly convinced that when you examine them and when you look at them in the light of the life of Jesus Christ and the teaching throughout all of Scripture that the Beatitudes really represent the expected values and mindset of citizens of God's kingdom here on earth. That these statements of blessing are meant to describe each of us as followers of Jesus Christ. Because we're supposed to become like Him, and He perfectly embodied these qualities. So as we explore the Beatitudes in the coming weeks, I believe that they can transform us if we choose to embrace them. That if we're willing to accept these blessings that Jesus states exist, if we adopt these behaviors and mindsets and values that are taught to us by our Savior, that there is the promise of changing our attitudes, our heart, our way of thinking, to to move from being self-focused or family-focused or employer-focused or nation-focused or church-focused And to really focus on building and enjoying the kingdom of heaven right here in Lake Ridge. So each week we're going to examine one beatitude closely to try and clearly understand what Jesus was saying and then apply it to our lives. So let's begin by deciphering the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, Jesus' first word here, the one that repeats verse after verse after verse, blessed, is the thing that gives the Beatitudes their name. Because in the Latin, the word for blessed is beatus. But the Greek word that Matthew uses here is makarios, and it, it describes someone who is singularly favored by God. To be blessed like Jesus is speaking of is not some temporary or trivial condition, like saying that you feel really blessed because traffic was light on I-95 this week. And I'm not saying that's not a blessing, but it's not the kind of blessing that Jesus is talking about. This word is describing an ongoing state of being, the reality that you are indeed favored by the creator of the universe. The blessings that Jesus describes should not be taken lightly or trivialized. They are a condition to be sought after, and they are a treasure that we should appreciate when we receive it. These are, in fact, I think, the blessings that we should each be enjoying as followers of Jesus Christ. We often get focused in the Christian life on heaven, the end result, the big picture, where we're going to wind up. But but I think that these blessings are part of the joy of everyday Christian life. They're part of the ongoing favor of God that's really at the heart of the abundant life that Jesus came to give to us today tomorrow, and for all eternity. So who does Jesus say are blessed? The poor in spirit. Now what on earth does that mean? Right? Does that mean that the only people who are blessed are people who don't have much money? Or that it's okay to have a decent amount of money as long as you pretend you're poor? What is going on? 
Obviously, it's important that we understand this if we are to appreciate what this beatitude is saying. And so, let's start to dig in here. The Greek word that is used here is patokos. And patokos describes sustained poverty such that your only confidence is in God. And so, to be patokos in spirit is to recognize that you are so spiritually poor that your only spiritual hope and confidence is in the Lord. Paul describes the way that Jesus became poor in spirit in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, when it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, the, the voluntary humbling of Jesus Christ when he stepped into this world, is his poverty of spirit. But for us, spiritual poverty means letting go of any pride that we might have in our status, our achievements, our morality, our good behavior or good deeds. And it means honestly and truly and deeply acknowledging that sometimes we're a mess. It's about confessing in our heart and to God that we're a sinner just like everyone else. It's agreeing in your heart what we believe with our head, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that includes me, and that includes you. The person who is poor in spirit recognizes that he or she needs God's help, that that they bring absolutely nothing to the table when they stand before the Lord of the universe. If we are poor in spirit, we will admit that God is holy, righteous, perfect, eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, and that He needs absolutely nothing from us. Moreover, if we are poor in spirit, we will admit that we are not holy, not righteous, not perfect, not eternal, quite ignorant, and exceedingly weak. If we're truly poor in spirit, we will recognize that no amount of behavior modification, self-discipline, bargaining, working hard, or rule-following will ever save us from our sins that we need God to save us. And in that regard, we are exactly like every single person living on this earth today. This, by the way, is why there is no place in the Gospel for any obscene notion of racial or ethnic superiority. Because we are all broken and desperately need a Savior. A Savior who made clear that He came to seek and save the lost of all nations, all races, all tribes, all tongues, all created equally in the image of God. Spiritual poverty is to declare bankruptcy spiritually and then throw yourself on the mercy of the judge. So if that's spiritual poverty, what exactly is the blessing? What does Jesus mean when he says that theirs is the kingdom of heaven? Well, the use of the present tense is makes clear that citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is immediately available to those who accept and admit their spiritual poverty and need for a savior. 
And while we tend to think of the kingdom of heaven as the place we're going to go when we die, Scripture is very clear. Jesus inaugurated that kingdom here on earth when he came the first time. This is why Jesus says, as recorded in Matthew 4.17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But Jesus is clear. The kingdom is not for every person on earth. The kingdom of heaven is only for those who recognize their spiritual poverty and throw themselves on the mercy of the judge by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Unlike us, Jesus Christ is strong, holy, righteous. Unlike us, Jesus never sinned, never fell short of the glory of God. And yet, because of his great love for us, Jesus voluntarily took on himself the judgment, the condemnation, the anger, and the punishment that we deserve for our sin. So that when we trust in him, we will not receive these things we deserve. And thus we have the truth of this beatitude, that citizenship in the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who admit their sin, their weakness, their brokenness, and embrace the undeserved, unearned, unmerited grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So with this understanding, I want you to consider two questions this morning. And I actually want you to keep considering them every day for the rest of this week. The first, are you truly poor in spirit? And the second, are we, Lake Ridge Baptist Church, truly poor in spirit? If spiritual poverty is an ongoing state of blessing, this being the message of the Beatitude, then even as people who have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, do we remain acutely aware of our spiritual poverty that we may enjoy this blessing that Jesus bought for us. So first, are you poor in spirit? Am I poor in spirit? It's incredibly easy to say all the right words and to abstractly give the Sunday school answer and and speak about our sin without ever personalizing it or or identifying it or truly believing in our heart on a day-to-day basis. Now, certainly our sins have been forgiven by God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. The sacrifice we'll be celebrating in just a few moments as we observe the Lord's Supper. But nonetheless, our heart still continues to lust after sin. Are we willing to really admit that? Both to ourselves and to God. Jesus gives us the perfect illustration of what spiritual poverty looks like In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. 
But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so the question is, do you truly feel like the tax collector every single day? So often, I don't think I do. Right? Even if we once felt like the tax collector, right? When we surrendered it all for Jesus, put our faith in him, and we we felt like the tax collector then, do we still feel that way today? Or after years and years of coming to church faithfully every Sunday, going to Bible studies, going to Sunday school, serving the church, giving to the poor, does our heart sometimes start to think like some modern-day North American evangelical Pharisee, God, I thank you that I am not like homeless people, drug addicts, homosexuals, or the mentally ill. Have you or I become the Pharisee? Have we come to believe the lie that we've got it all together spiritually? And so therefore we are superior to those whose lives are still a mess. This is a constant threat to our Christian walk. And if you don't think you can slip into this kind of mindset, then you are in grave danger. Because as we watch our society's moral structures and boundaries crumble, it becomes more and more powerfully tempting for the church and for Christians to become more and more like that Pharisee and say, oh Lord, thank you that I am not like all those other people in America. And we can apply whatever choice terms we have for those who are outside the will of God. But when we do this, we stop being effective for God's kingdom. We're still saved, that's guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, but we forget that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, not because of our good behavior. Over time, our functional theology, the way we actually live, diverges more and more from our confessional theology, the things we say we believe. And we go cold for the gospel. We lose our urgency and our compassion for the lost because we forget that once we were lost too. But we are poor in spirit. We rejoice in being part of God's kingdom. And we desperately want others who bring nothing to the table to join us in the kingdom. We stop thinking about having a nice country club where we only want people who look like us in our country club and we want anyone and everyone made in the image of God, but fallen and broken. Spiritual poverty protects us from racism, classism, elitism, and the other evils that render us useless for God's kingdom. Spiritual poverty leaves our heart tender and broken for the lost, the broken, the addicted, the abused, the neglected. And this is where we each need to be as citizens of the kingdom of heaven in Lake Ridge, Virginia, with that urgency and that care for those who are not yet part of the kingdom. I was just, before, right immediately before the service, I was talking to Ruth. The Indonesian team is back. And I want to hear all their stories, and I want you to hear all their stories. But she told me that in their short time, their small group, 
right? They, they shared the gospel with large groups. They shared the gospel one-on-one. They shared the gospel one-on-one, the full gospel, 80 times. They had people say yes. This is amazing. This is the kind of urgency that we need to have at home. And I pray that this team will help show us the way. So I urge you to talk more with Ruth. I saw Susan, Fred. Walt will be back in a week or two. Talk with them about their experiences. Learn from them. Be inspired. I know I will. And then we need to ask ourselves whether we, as a church, are poor in spirit. Because scripture says that churches can also be poor in spirit. They can be humble, faithful, and, and relying on God, knowing that he's the one who does the real work. Or they can be spiritually proud and overconfident in their own strength. Revelation three seventeen and 18 describes the lukewarm church of Laodicea. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. So are we, Lake Ridge Baptist Church, poor in spirit... Or are we more like the church of Laodicea? And as I look at Jesus' words in Revelation here, if we are truly poor in spirit, I would expect to see us as a church that is on our knees at all times and in all seasons, not just in crises. That we would be a church in constant prayer for God's spirit to reign and not ours. For God's will to be done and not ours. For God's kingdom to to grow and not ours. And I would ask, is that what you see in the typical week here at LRBC? Everyone has a different perspective. You may see it better than I do, but I don't see that kind of urgency and passion on a consistent basis. Many of you are very diligent in praying individually for these matters. There are groups that pray for this as well. But on the whole, Corporate prayer remains a weak area for us as a church. I believe it's going to become a limiter for us as a church as we seek to really honor the Great Commission and fulfill the vision given to us. We may truly be poor in spirit, but we just don't seem to act like it. We may be consistently praying as individuals, but we are not a consistently praying people. And so as we seek to obey God's will, as we seek to be transformed by His Spirit and to revitalize this church and the community around us, we need to become persistently, consistently praying people. We need to be people who pray together in large groups. We need to be people who pray together in small groups. We need to be people who pray in the church. We need to be people who pray in other people's homes. We need to be people who pray on Sunday. We need to be people who pray the other six days of the week. So we're going to be looking to increase the amount of prayer in our various Bible studies, particularly Wednesday night adult studies, which start again in two weeks. But we would love to see prayer groups forming in homes throughout the week, all the different days or times to be covered, and have more people joining us praying on Sunday nights at 6. Because biblically, we need to be confessing our sin and our, our weakness, our need as a church. 
And we need to be praying not just for those who are sick, who we know, or friends, or related to, but we need to be praying for revival in this church and in the greater community around us, for God's will to be done and His Spirit to move. And so I want to urge you to get involved in praying for these kingdom priorities, both individually and with others. And to be praying for our God-given mission as a church. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' challenge and his offer of blessing that he puts forth in this beatitude is for each of us to truly live like that. To truly live like we're citizens right now of heaven. Right? Scripture is clear. Our citizenship today, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is in heaven. This looks like a life that is grounded in the humility of really facing our sinful nature and past. Rejoicing each day in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that bought that citizenship for us. Out of this poverty of spirit flows genuine compassion, gratitude, a desperate hunger to see the lost saved, for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the blessing that's available to us each and every day as we recognize our weaknesses and shortcomings. In the last chapter of Isaiah, God promises, and this is one we should appreciate and treasure, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Are you poor in spirit? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, strip away our spiritual pride, our illusions of great spiritual worth and self-righteousness. Help us to recognize that our identity is in Christ, that our salvation is through faith in Christ, that we did not do this ourselves. Help us to appreciate the gift we have been given. Give us a passion for those who have not yet received this gift, Lord. That we may indeed be poor in spirit and enjoy the blessings of the kingdom of heaven today and every day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We want to give you some time to reflect, to respond. Blessed to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As we sing, I just want to open up the front of the church for those who want to lay down any spiritual pride you've been carrying that you need to get rid of, that keeps you from truly embracing and enjoying life in the kingdom. As we sing, Pastor Neil and I will be in the front if you want us to pray with you or or if you want to share something that we may pray over you and pray with you. If you've never yet humbled yourself and embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never said, you're right, Lord, I can't do this myself, I cannot save myself, I encourage you to make that decision today, to embrace the reality that you are indeed spiritually poor. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves, but God has graciously given us a way 
through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's worship. Let's stand. <laughs>